Hello there. My name is Barry Smith and I'm with Fingal Libraries. Today and for Heritage Week 2020, I would like to share with you my love of Irish heritage and culture through a winding exploration of some of our native trees and the mythology and history associated with them. Trees have a special place in our world. They inhabited the earth long before us and have been instrumental in helping us throughout our evolution. They come in all shapes and sizes and can live to be hundreds of years old. They all have their own characteristics and quirks and grow whatever which way they can. It is not unusual to see a willow tree bending to such an extent that it is practically on its side seemingly indifferent to a vertical existence and now quite content to continue growing from a more reclined position. Our beautiful trees look awe-inspiring when standing proudly on their own, but are even more wonderful when all gather together in a majestic woodland. They provide abundant food and shelter for wildlife, and indeed to merely see a woodland is to experience only half the joy one must also hear all the incredible life that the wood supports. The annual springtime cacophony of jubilant songbirds vying for attention, the ominous calls and hoarse croaks of the rooks, and whatever other members of the Corvid family have come to visit. An ever-present buzzing of wings as pollinators go about their vital work, certainly paying an interloper such as yourself no heed. And should you tarry in one place for a while, the suspicious creatures that inhabit the undergrowth, who had stopped dead upon hearing your approach, will assume you have vanished, and continue their noisy rustling, and doing whatever it is that such creatures do in the undergrowth, which is altogether too low down for us to investigate. This wealth of interconnecting life is possible due to trees. And once there was a time when we understood our place in that world, rather than in this world which we have created, largely and regrettably disconnected from nature. For once we relied heavily on that world, and we developed a very close relationship with trees. They provided us with food and medicine, and wood for fire, for houses, weapons, tools, and the all-important boats that allowed us to navigate the rivers when dense forests made the land impassable. Such was their immense value that people began to venerate and worship them. Some trees became focal points for society, and land was identified and known by the trees that resided there. Such was their importance to people's sense of identity that trees became centrepieces of mythology and folklore. Mythology was an essential component of life to our ancestors. It assisted in answering nature's questions provided meaning for life's mysteries and gave people a sense of belonging by rooting them to the landscape. And that seems like as good a place as any to begin this journey, by looking at the mythology and legends associated with a small selection of trees, seven to be precise. After which we shall casually examine, very casually mind you, the potent influence that trees had on our ancestors through our ancient Ohm alphabet the veneration or worship they attracted, the pages dedicated to them in the native Gaelic legal system, their contribution to the naming of places throughout Ireland, 
and their generosity in providing medicines to both our ancestors and to us today. So to not leave you mentally stranded and wandering around early medieval Ireland, we will quickly and quietly make our way in the direction of the 16th century, a devastating time indeed, where entire forests were harvested like corn. Before finishing up, we will explore the science of what actually happens in the woods. However, I preemptively confess that I use the word science loosely. Finally, and in an effort to shake you out of the lamentations that will inevitably be stirred up during our foray into the 16th century, we will look at the commendable modern-day efforts being carried out by individuals and organisations to reforest Ireland with its native broadleaf trees. By way of a disclaimer, this will not be an intensive lesson in tree studies or dendrology. It will not be a user's guide on how to correctly identify trees, nor will it be offering advice on where and when is the best time to plant trees. It will be filled with trees nonetheless, but in the context of their connection to Ireland's heritage. So let's take a wee look and ramble through some of what was, what is, and the excitement of what is to come. The first tree we shall encounter is the first tree that Ireland herself encountered. About 10,000 years ago, as the last great ice sheets of Ireland's last ice age were retreating north, life began to return to this land. Grasses and plants started to grow, and animals began to make their way here via the land bridge that connected the southeastern tip of Ireland to southwestern England. The tree recolonisation of Ireland soon followed and was heralded with the enthusiastic and vigorous arrival of the birch tree. This trait of the beautiful birch, the vanguard of trees, was known to our ancestors and to them it symbolised renewal and purification, life after winter. The birch is one of the easier trees to recognise, with its grey-white shimmering bark encapsulating its elegant and slender form. Growing about 15 to 20 metres high, its branches gracefully arc up and softly droop downwards again. The birch is a very accommodating tree, full of vitality. It encourages other life to follow it. It has sparse foliage, so the light can readily pour through to the ground below, and when the birch loses its leaves, they fall to the earth and provide rich nourishment for the other trees, plants and flowers. In the pursuit of driving out the unwanted spirits of the past year, our ancestors used twigs and branches of the birch because of their purification and renewal attributes. This tree was associated with youth and love. We see this in several of our myths, such as when Cúculain was a boy, he was described as having hair of bright yellow like the top of a birch tree. And twice during the relentless pursuit of Diarmid and Grania, when the ageing Fionn McCool refused to accept Grania's rebuttal of his marriage proposal, Diarmid made the couple a bed from rushes which were topped with birch. First at Deradov Wee, which is near modern-day Carrickmacross in County Monaghan, and the second is known simply as Beh or Birch. Equally, 
When Maine Morgor, the son of Queen Maeve of Connacht, went to his wedding in Ulster to marry Ferv, daughter of Greg of Rathinny, rushes topped with birch were laid out on the floor to greet him. However, in this instance, and despite the good intention of new beginnings that the birch represents, disaster befell the wedding party. Upon hearing a prophecy that Connacht would steal the great brown bull of Cooley, Crohor MacNassa and the men of Ulster attacked and killed Maine and the men of Connacht in order to preempt the theft. Needless to say that this did not prevent the great cattle raid of Queen Maeve. It should be remembered that there can be various layers to these stories and seemingly obvious conclusions may not in fact be the case. Such as the birch in this story may not have been symbolic of Maine's new life in marriage but of his new life after death. Life and death were more connected and perhaps had less fear attached for our ancestors than it does for us today, which is of course understandable as we live far longer than they did. So it is unsurprising when we read of ancient customs that involved carrying the deceased to their graves on a bed of birch branches, which will ease their rebirth in the afterlife. Even today, People who look to nature to provide insights and guidance in their lives connect with the birch tree. It is a spring tree and possesses vast amounts of spring energy, which is ideal if you are looking to start something new in your life, begin a new journey, or seeking to change or cast off unwanted vestiges of some part of your life. Following close behind in the footsteps of the birch, once the latter has nourished the soil sufficiently, the willow tree, or soliach in Irish, arrived and began to take root in what would otherwise have been entire woodlands of birch. The sleepy-looking willow tree, with its delicate pollen-saturated catkins in early spring, is a boon to emerging insects who feast on the generously supplied nectar. All the willow tree asks in return is that the insects wear its coat of pollen as they continue on their travels to a female willow. They liked to grow near water and were thus viewed as a symbol of life and fertility and had an association with feminine energy and the moon also. Owing to its malleable and soft shoots, willow has, since ancient times right up to today, been used for basket making and for making willow walls as a natural fencing system. Simply taking long willow shoots and sticking them in the ground and weaving them together, you will soon have a beautiful, if not impenetrable, wall of willow. The wood was traditionally used for making harps, and we are reminded of the story of Lavrid Loinshock. Lavrid was a king who was considered one of the ancestors of the Ligon, or Leinstermen. He was born, unfortunately for him, with horse ears, something that he hid all his life by growing his hair long. If his secret was to become known, it would be considered a blemish and he would lose his kingship, for only a perfect individual in mind and body may rule. Once a year a man was chosen who had the dubious honour of cutting the king's hair, after which he was swiftly put to death, lest he make known Lavrid's condition. One year a boy was chosen to cut the king's hair. His mother pleaded with Lavrid not to kill her son. The king was moved by the mother's love, consented and swore the boy to secrecy. However, 
the terrible secret proved too much for the boy, and he fell ill because of it. A druid was consulted, and he told the boy to go to the river and to tell his secret to the first tree he meets. So the boy happened upon a willow, and informed the tree of the king's horse ears. With the burden having been lifted by the tree, the boy returned to good health. However, the tree was visited shortly after by the court harpist named Crafteen, who had just broken his instrument. He used the wood of the willow to make for himself another harp. The honour of hearing the harp's first tune was reserved for the king, and as Crafteen began to play, the harp sang out about Lavrid's horse ears for the whole court to hear. His secret finally revealed the king was overcome with shame for all the men he had put to death. For those more in tune to nature and who connect with it on a deeper level, the energy of the willow encourages us to move forward. Like the water and rivers that it prefers to grow beside, the willow allows us to move on and to work through pain, grief and sadness. It encourages emotions to rise to the surface so they can be dealt with. It unlocks intuition so that one can understand and move past stuck emotions. With the establishment of birch and willow, the woods were ready for the arrival of hazel, oak, ash, elm and Scots pine. 9,000 years ago, just before the first people arrived here, the island would have been covered in magnificent and ancient woodlands only being interrupted by rivers, lakes, bogs and mountain peaks. If you were wondering who was keeping track of what trees entered the country and when, it was the humble bog. Our early trees were pollinated by the wind, so during the late winter and early spring, huge amounts of pollen were floating all around the place, and some settled on the surface of the bog, which was eventually covered over and formed a layer of natural information for modern scientists to mine at a time most convenient to them. The hazel, or call in Irish, is a small tree with a bushy habit with broad, rounded leaves. They continue to grow well after being coppiced, that is, when they are cut down to the base and from there grows many new shoots that thrust up from the stump like long fingers. The hazel has a very special place in Irish mythology, as it is known as the tree of knowledge and represents wisdom, kingship, fertility and inspiration in poetry. It was strongly associated with magic and hazel sticks were and still are used for water divining. They were often carried by people travelling at night to ward off evil owing to the tree's righteous properties and we have many folk tales of people dueling with demons armed only with a hazel stick. Its wood was traditionally used for making staffs and walking sticks on account of its flexibility. It grows favourably with apple and hawthorn, so mark the boundaries of magical or sacred places. There is a recurring motif in Irish mythology of wells of wisdom, which are surrounded by nine sacred hazel trees, with nine also being a sacred number. These wells were found above ground, underground and even under the sea, with several stories of heroes travelling to the other world to encounter these sources of wisdom and truth. The nuts of the hazel, which contained the wisdom of the world, would fall into the well and be eaten by salmon, who would then contain all knowledge. Nine magical hazel trees grew around the well of Sagus, which was at the hill of Carberry in County Kildare. 
Only Necton, the king of the Puadadanan, and his cupbearers were allowed near this sacred place. The Thuadadanan were a supernatural race, who were tall and fair, and they excelled in the arts, poetry and magic. They battled other races, called the Firbog and the Formorians, for control of Ireland. They themselves were eventually defeated and driven underground by the Sons of Meal, who were the first humans to arrive in Ireland, later known as the Gaels. With the help of Christian scribes, the Thua the Danon diminished underground and became the She, the fairies or the wee folk. However, they could still come forth from their dunes, rats, ring forts, cairns and burial mounds when it suited them to either assist or hinder mankind. So it was that Necton's wife, Bowen, ignored this edict and heedlessly strode up to and around the well. Without warning and in a fury, the waters bubbled up and gushed forth, chasing Bowen to the coast and swallowing her up before reaching the sea. What was left in its wake was named after the drowned princess and became known as the River Boyne in County Meath. The salmon of knowledge that the well contained was released into the Boyne and spent some years evading the fishing line of the poet Phinegus, who knew of and sought the fish's wisdom. But the tenacious Phinegus eventually caught the fish around the same time as a young boy called Fionn arrived. Phinegus tasked Fionn with cooking the fish. As he did so, he saw a blister arise on the fish's skin. So Fionn pressed it with his thumb, but it burst by accident. He immediately stuck his burnt thumb into his mouth to ease the pain, and unintentionally gained all the knowledge that the fish possessed. He was known from then on as Fionn McCool, Fionn, son of Hazel. The Irish for Hazel is Col, which is also the word for chieftain, thereby foretelling Fionn as a wise leader of men. This came to pass, and Fionn became the leader of Nafiana, a semi-historical warrior band who served the High King, defended Ireland from external enemies, and lived off the land by hunting. Indeed, Hazel followed our hero throughout his journeys. He possessed an ancient shield that was made of magically charged hazelwood. During the Second Battle of Moichora, the champion of the Thuatadanan named Lu defeated the Formorian sorcerer Balor in combat and removed his head, spiking it on a hazel where it proceeded to rot the tree for the next 50 years. The sea god Mananon MacLear removed the still potent head of Balor and had a shield crafted from the magically imbued hazel, which eventually found its way to Fionn many generations later. Hazel continued to influence Fionn's life. His future wife, Saive, was a daughter of Bod Derig, who was the king of the Thuadadanan underground at that time. Saive rebuffed the advances of Fair Durka, who was a druid among the Thuadai. Out of bitterness and spite, he turned her into a fawn using his hazel wand. For three years she wandered Ireland in this form until she encountered a Fenia hunting party led by Fionn. His wolfhounds Bran and Skeolan recognised the magic that enveloped Saive and did not attack her. She was led back to Fionn's dune or fort whereby the evil magic held no sway and she became a beautiful woman once again. They fell in love and Saive was soon pregnant. 
One day, soon after, whilst Fionn was away in battle, Far Durka returned and tricked Saive away from the dune, and again, using his hazel wand, turned her once more into a fawn, and she was not seen again. Her pregnancy nevertheless continued, and she gave birth in the wilderness to Ushin, which means little fawn. Ushin was left to fend for himself for seven years until he was found by Fionn, and would later go on to become one of the greatest of the Fianna. The precious nut of the hazel, which was an important food source to the early Irish, is used many times in the literature as a symbol of the heart. The death of heroes and loved ones is followed by grieving and regular accounts of the bursting of the heart like a nut. The Thu of the Danon, it was said, placed three things above all else, the plough, the sun and the hazel. The plough representing the labourers and those who kept society clothed and fed. The sun representing the warriors and the hazel representing the learned classes and the king. Those who work with energy will feel the reverberations of the myths and legends associated with hazel come to life. The tree is still associated with knowledge, wisdom and divine source, which can be employed for creativity, transformation of self and accessing inspiration through meditation. The majestic oak, or dar in Irish, can be identified by its leaves which have irregular deep lobes, as well as its late summer-blooming little acorns, complete with their fashionable wee caps that always prove a seasonal favourite amongst the squirrels. Their life can be exceedingly long, with the great oak on the Charleville estate outside of Tullamore estimated to be up to 800 years old. So it was possibly a sapling in 1222 when the annals reported on a ferocious storm that wreaked havoc across Ireland. They lamented a great wind throughout Ireland and it wrecked houses, churches, the great woods and sank many ships. The Charleville Oak now stands at over 60 feet tall and its trunk is over 26 feet in girth and its sprawling branches reach out to nearly 90 feet. This enormous being would have been commonplace in early Ireland. Its ancient bearing made it a symbol of strength and fertility, endurance and kingship. Although the oak was apparently revered and venerated by the continental Celts with sacred rites practised by their druids, in Ireland the oak chiefly signifies kingship, whereas the whitethorn, rowan and hazel are here considered our magical trees. However, owing to the intimate nature of kingship and the land, the oak was also associated with the other world. In fact, the very name for oak in Irish, Dera, and in Old Irish, Dor, has its roots in the Sanskrit Dur, which means door, a door to the other world. During Dermid and Grania's flight from Fionn and the Fianna, they rested at a place called Dera Davui, or Oakwood of the Two Fools. There the pair took shelter in an oak grove, and we are told that Dermid cut seven doors from the wood. The Fianna surrounded the grove, but were unable to enter it, and it could well be that Dermid had entered the other world of which the oak was the gateway. The myths and legends abound with references to this sacred tree. As Queen Maeve and her army marched on Ulster during the Thon Bokulnia, Cuchulain, in an effort to delay the army, 
felled a great oak across a ford and carved a challenge into its bark using the ohm script. He demanded that the army not pass until one of its warriors leaps his chariot over the oak in the first attempt. Maeve's warriors respected the challenge, and over twenty of them dashed themselves and their chariots against the tree in vain attempts. It took another Ulsterman, the self-exiled Fergus MacRoth, to complete the challenge and allow the army to pass. The choice of tree for this encounter is certainly not random, for the episode is rich in symbolism. It took Cúchulainn, a leader of men and the epitome of strength and endurance to fell a mighty oak, the king of the wood. And only Fergus was able to complete the challenge, for Fergus was once king of Ulster and again donned that mantle of king in exile when he openly revolted against Crohor MacNass's unjust reign in Ulster. The Dagda, the father of the gods of the Thua the Danann, possessed several magical items. A vast cauldron that could feed any amount of people that came to it, a giant club that could kill men as well as heal them, and a magical harp made of oak. It was called Dardovlo, or the Oak of Two Meadows. During the Second Battle of Moitura, the Formori stole the harp of the Dagda, as he used it to alleviate the fears of his warriors as they marched into battle. After the long and bloody engagement was won, the Dagda, along with the heroes Lu and Ogma, cast off their weariness and sought out the thieves. They found them held up in a dune, ready to fight for possession of the magical artefact. However, the Dagda stretched out his arms and the harp came hurtling towards him, killing many Formori as it did so. We see here the oak, symbolising kingship, recognising the righteous owner over the thieves who try to usurp the magical artefact. The honour of being the wood to kindle the sacred fire of Bialtana was reserved for the oak. The all-important Bialtana festival in May marks the midway space between the spring equinox and the summer solstice. It was the beginning of summer and livestock were sent out to pasture. Rituals involving bonfires were practised, with their smoke and ash employed to protect livestock and crops for the coming season. Prior to this celebration, all fires in the country were extinguished, and the hill of Ishnock in County Westmeath had the prestige of lighting the first fire of summer, and embers from it were taken with which to rekindle all other fires in Ireland. For those seeking to connect to the energy of the oak, they will find its namesake of the door appropriate, as the oak is the gateway to inner spirituality and strength. Connecting with it after times of hardship or stress can help to replenish one's self-determination, will and courage. A powerful tree indeed, and unsurprising that it has attracted so much magical and sacred attention over the millennia. The ash or Finchoaga in Irish, grows freely in many hedgerows and grows particularly well in the Midlands. It is our tallest native tree and you will be able to spot it during the summer as it is the last tree to come into leaf. The ash, like the oak, is fantastic at facilitating biodiversity and supports over 40 different species of insect. In recent years, however, the ash has suffered terribly from the fungus commonly known as Calara or ash dieback, The disease which has swept through Europe 
gets into and damages the innermost layer of the bark, which the ash relies on to transport nutrients around the tree. Thousands of ash trees identified as having it are felled in an attempt to restrict the spread. The ash is an important part of Irish mythology and folklore. Its association with water grants it healing and fertility properties. Its wood, known for its strength and flexibility, was and still is used to fashion staffs and walking sticks, some of which are believed to ward off evil spirits. Conversely, it was also the wood favoured by witches, by which to make their wands. The tree was considered sacred in ancient times, and indeed three out of the five great sacred guardian trees of Ireland were ash. But we will revisit that story later on. This reverence continued into the early Christian period. A sample survey of surviving holy wells lists 210 trees growing next to these wells. Of that number, 75 are ash trees. There are numerous tales of early saints and their connection with ash, in particular St. Bridget. Due to its water association, the ash was believed to protect those travelling on the sea, and as a result, oars and crosses for boats were fashioned from ash. In particular, during the 19th century, when countless people were forced to emigrate, they took with them twigs of ash. A sacred ash at Kilura in County Cork, which is linked to St. Cravenet, served this purpose for many of the inhabitants of the area before they embarked across the Atlantic, the vast majority of which did not return. The ash is strongly connected to Queen Maeve of Connacht. Wherever she staked her horsewhip in the ground, an ash would grow, and the place be remembered as Billy Maeve, or the sacred tree of Maeve. She was seen as a sovereignty goddess of Connacht, meaning that any man who wished to rule would have to marry her, and due to Maeve's fiery nature would also have to endure her infidelities, which included Fergus MacRoth, implying that Fergus was more suited to the kingship than her husband, Alil. The ash had a measurable value to the early Irish warrior, for his weapon upon which his life depended was made from ash. The spear was the preeminent weapon of war amongst their ancestors and continued in use right up to the 16th century. Such was the ubiquitous nature of the spear in Irish society that there existed no less than 12 different terms for it. Beer, Bunsoch, Kletene, Krusoch, Fogo, Govloch, Gaw, Gothnet, Lethge, Monus, Sleg and Ligon. The last of which is how we come to know the Leinstermen, the Ligon, Spearmen, and as you would hear Leinster today, Kugeligen, province of the Spearmen. The myths tell us of the required proficiency in the use of spears for thrusting and casting, as well as for defending against. A renowned entry test for an Athena was to be buried up to your waist, and with only a shield and a hazel rod to successfully defend yourself as nine warriors hurl a spear at you from every direction. The National Museum in Dublin possesses hundreds of spearheads, and it is evident from these that Gaelic smiths were exceptionally skilled craftsmen, capable of creating beautiful spearheads from bronze and iron, with some measuring up to an incredible three feet in length, separate of course to the ashen shaft that would have held it. The long, elegant and graceful nature of the spearheads matches the description of the dialogue between the Fyrboeg, who inhabited Ireland before the newly arrived Thuadadanon. 
champions from each race compared weapons, and the Fyrbog, with their thick, broad spears, were envious of the Thuaday's far superior elegant weaponry. No spear in Irish legend is more well known than that of Cuculans, the Gabulag, it was called, the belly spear. Only the most legendary warriors were capable of performing the feat required to wield the weapon. It had to be rested upon water, and the hero hooked his toe into a socket on the spearhead and launched the weapon with the full force of his leg. It was thus that Cuculan killed his dearest friend and foster brother Ferdia, as well as his son Connla, whom he did not recognise. Ash has an excellent capacity for shock absorbency whilst remaining flexible which is why it was chosen for spear-making. But they were also the very reasons that Ash was used to make hurlies. Hurling, that most ancient game, is referenced much in the myths and legends. Crohor MacNassa, the King of Ulster, encouraged boys to play hurling on a field beside his dune so that they may prepare for battle when they were older. Such was the ferocity of matches, we are told, that they were not too dissimilar to the battlefield. When Queen Maeve and the men of Ireland marched on Ulster, none except Cuculan were able to resist her, as the Ulster men were laid low owing to the curse of Macca, which had them experience the pains of childbirth for nine days at the very time when their land needed them the most. The boy troop, as they were known, a hundred and fifty of them, picked up their hurlies and struck out to meet the invading army in order to help Cuculan however best they could. Queen Maeve's husband, King Elil, upon seeing the boys, sent 150 of his warriors against them. The boy troop fought with such ferocity, armed only with their hurlies, that by the time the last of them fell, they had also dispatched the 150 warriors of Connacht. The energy of the ash can be potent, as it connects one to universal truth, and allows one to explore the interconnecting layers of physical, mental and spiritual aspects of themselves. Communication with the ash can be heightened through the conscious act of making a spear from the wood of an ash tree. It can assist you as you delve into your spiritual warrior self. The yew, or ur in Irish, is a magnificent tree and was saturated with sacred symbolism to our ancestors. It embodied death, rebirth and transformation. The yew grows in seemingly magical ways. Its branches can grow down and bury themselves in the earth, becoming the trunks of new trees while still being part of the original. Its power of rebirth is evident when a new trunk can grow from a seemingly dead and decaying old trunk, thus the tree was seen as representing the circle of life. Yew trees are commonly found in graveyards, but their association with the word fed nevid, or sacred grove, could suggest that these ewes inhabited the ground long before the early churches were built. In order to graft itself onto Irish society, early Christianity had to associate itself with the existing beliefs. So pagan sacred wells became Christian holy wells, and pagan sacred groves became Christian holy sites. Yew wood was used for holy relics, such as croziers or holy staffs, and to make shrines for holy books and manuscripts. The mythology is alive with references to the Yew and the parts it played in the sagas. Lu, the great hero of the Thuladanan, possessed a spear which was made of Yew. It was impossible to overcome this spear, and speaking the word Yew 
as an incantation prior to casting it would ensure that the spear always hit its mark. The yew also has powers of divination, which can be seen in Tokvark Aethon, or the wooing of Aethon. When Mither, the son of the Dagda of the Tuadadanon, elopes with the mortal queen Aethon, her husband, the High King Ochid, is furious and spends years searching for her. Finally, his druid inscribes Ohm on four rods of yew, and through the act of divination, locates Mither in his underground dune at Breleth at Arda Hill in County Longford. Nafina also had associations with the ewe. They had a giant vat made from it which could hold beer enough for 600 men. They equally had more sinister encounters. They were attacked by evil spirits whilst travelling through a ewe valley and in another ewe wood Fionn was given foresight and witnessed the final destruction of his beloved Fiona, which came to pass at the Battle of Gower in the valley between Tara and Screen in County Meath. The U was not considered evil, but it did have a strong association with death. The story of the U of the Disputing Sons concerns a mortal king named Aliel Olam, who was unfit to rule, as was evident from the land rejecting him by refusing to grow grass for his herds. So he coveted the Raths and Dunes of the She, another name for the now diminished Thuadadanon who had been driven underground generations before. Alil and his retinue spied two of the She, Ogaval and his sister Anya. The king surprised the pair, fought with and killed Ogaval, and forced himself upon Anya. During the struggle, Anya bit off her attacker's ear and with a howl of pain and rage, Alil drove a spear through the body of Anya as she lay defenceless on the ground. Incensed by this brutal injustice, the she, led by the battle goddess known as the Morrigan, devised a plan of revenge. Using their sorcery, they conjured the most incredible yew tree that was said to allow 300 warriors to rest under its branches, and they placed it on the border where several kingdoms met. The greedy mortals naturally all vied for this otherworldly tree and asked King Alil to proclaim a fair judgment on who should possess it. Alil, to further demonstrate his unjust rule, gave a false judgment and awarded the tree to one of his sons. Outraged, the kingdoms waged war on each other and a great slaughter was unleashed at the Battle of Magma Crev, where it was said that all the heads of Ireland fell including all of Alil's seven sons. The revenge sated, the she faded back into their world. Uncoincidentally, energy work undertaken with the you can lead one to the spirit realm and to places within self that can assist with transformation. Our last tree, before we move on, is one who perhaps needs little introduction as its cultural importance is still very much with us. That is, the Hawthorn, or Sciacial in Irish. The sight of a lone Hawthorn in a field is common indeed, and its association with the she or fairies was widely believed up to living memory, and in fact still holds sway among the old and young of today. We have much to thank this superstition for. The preservation of so many ancient sites, including cairns and ring forts, are due to them having a Hawthorn in or beside them. Everyone in the country knew that to interfere with one was to court disaster with otherworldly spirits. 
every hamlet, village and town will have stories about individuals who displayed great hubris and removed a hawthorn. Needless to say, they all suffered for their transgression, and the punishment can vary dramatically, ranging from cows going dry, to a lisp developing, to your home being burned down, to losing your mind, and even being found dead in your bed the next morning. Thus, because of fear or veneration, the hawthorn became the most revered tree in medieval and early modern Ireland. Regular gifts were placed under its branches, such as offering milk from a newly calf cow. The tree features prominently with the early saints, and the hawthorn is the most common tree to be found beside holy wells. Even the once powerful Maguires of County Fermanagh would inaugurate their chief under the hawthorn tree that stood at Lisneski Fort, Ski also being the Irish for hawthorn, and Lis being its fort. The fear attached to the hawthorn may be diminishing, but paying homage to them in return for good fortune is still widely practised, and we can see many hawthorns adorned with ribbon and trinkets as offerings in the hope that wishes are granted. Unfortunately, we also see some of these hawthorns struggling under the weight of these offerings, and although they were made with the best of intentions, tightly tying string and ribbon around dozens of its branches strangles the tree and will actually kill it over time. Be not deterred. Continue to make your offerings to the magical hawthorn. Just tie your ribbon with some breathing room. Those seeking greater connection with the hawthorn will find that it has powerful energy, as its reputation would suggest. This was only a selection of trees chosen, and much more could be said about them, as well as all those that we did not mention. Suffice perhaps to allow Ovdon, King of the Fairies, to summarise the importance of trees in his wood. In this medieval poem, Ovdon advises Fergus MacLeod, King of Ulster, on the special qualities of trees and which ones should or should not be burned in the household fire. The pliant woodbine and honeysuckle, if thou burn, wailings for misfortune will abound. Dire extremity at weapon's point or drowning in great waves will follow. Burn not the precious apple tree of spreading and low sweeping bough, tree ever decked in bloom of white against whose fair head all men put forth the hand. The surly blackthorn is a wanderer, a wood that the artificer burns not. Throughout his body, though it be scanty, birds in their flocks warble. The noble willow burn not, a tree sacred to poems. Within its blooms bees are a-sucking, all love the little cage. The graceful tree with its berries, the wizard's tree, the rowan burn. But spare the limber tree, burn not the slender hazel. Dark is the colour of ash, timber that makes the wheel to go. Rods he furnishes for the horseman's hands. His form turns battle into flight. Tender hook among the woods the spiteful briar is. Burn him that is so keen and green. He cuts, he flays the foot. Him that would advance he forcibly drags backwards. Fiercest heat-giver of all timber is green oak. From him none may escape unhurt. 
By partiality for him the head is set on aching, and by his acrid embers the eye is made sore. Alder, very battle witch of all woods, tree that is hottest in the fight, undoubtedly burn at thy discretion both the alder and the whitethorn. Holly, burn it green, holly, burn it dry, of all trees whatsoever the critically best is holly. Elder, that hath tough bark, tree that in truth hurts sore, him that furnishes horses to the armies from the she, burn so that he can be charred. The birch as well, if he be laid low, promises abiding fortune. Burn up most sure and certainly the stakes that bear the constant pods. Put on the hearth, if it so please thee, the russet aspen, to come headlong down. Burn, be it late or early, the tree with the palsied branch. Patriarch of long-lasting woods is the yew, sacred to feasts, as it is well known. Of him now build ye dark red vats of goodly size. A measure of the high regard in which trees were held by our ancestors is our native alphabet, which is known as Ohm. Created sometime between the 2nd and 4th centuries AD and representing the first form of written Irish, Ohm is instantly recognisable with its various, largely horizontal lines etched into and falling on one side or the other, or indeed straight through, a vertical spine. It is said that Ohm was created by Ogma, the god of eloquence and literature, and a great champion of the Thuadadanan. One of his epithets is Grion Enoch, Sunface, and it could be alluding to the divine inspiration known as Imbas Ferosne in Old Irish, that shines bright within him. Imbas Ferosne was a great gift of prophetic knowledge or clairvoyance that was possessed by the Phila or poets of early Ireland as well as some heroes, such as Fionn McCool. Hundreds of examples of Ohm have survived, all of which are on the medium of stone, and are mostly located in the south of Ireland, predominantly in Kerry and Cork. University College Cork has a fine collection on display in what they call their stone corridor. Most stones have a short message inscribed on them, such as a personal name, or an individual and their affiliated tribe or territory. They do not appear to be grave markers, owing to the lack of burials beneath them, so more than likely represent territorial markers or commemorations for prominent people in society. Ohm stones are also found in places of Irish settlement or influence, such as Scotland, Orkney, Wales, the Isle of Man and several in Cornwall and Devon. Two manuscripts provide us with the key in translating Ohm, for indeed if we were without them, we would have no foundation with which to begin to try and decipher this ancient text. The Orasef Nehekis, or the Scholar's Primer, from the 7th century, and the Inlaur Ohm, or Ohm Tract, in which the Briother Ohm, or Word Ohm, is found. The alphabet is based on the trees of Ireland, each letter, or sigil, of which there are twenty, is called feather, which means tree. 
Eight of the 20 can be directly matched to the names of specific trees, but the remainder require more deduction. Their description is more poetic and alludes to an aspect of a certain tree. For example, we have Lus, which means flame, and can be attributed to the Rhone, with its berries of bright flaming red. This method was not employed to confound those who followed. It is simply evidence that Ohm is a wonderful embodiment of our ancestors' approach to explaining life. They did not categorise the things that surrounded them, such as we today are obsessed with doing. Everything was taken together to better explain and understand nature, the world and people's sense of belonging. Ohm was not simply a mechanism for relaying the written word, it was a beautifully imagined system of conveying meaning, symbolism and magic, as well as a literary device. Ohm is read from bottom to top, such as one would climb a tree, and it follows the seasonal cycle. So the first letter and tree of the alphabet is B for birch, which is the first tree to wake up after the winter, while the rest of its companions continue their slumber a little longer. This is followed by L for Lewis or Rowan, and continues until we get to I for Ear or the yew tree. References to Ohm are littered throughout the myths and sagas. In the voyage of Bran, written in the 8th century, the tale follows Bran MacFeevil, who receives a vision from the other world and sets out with nine companions across the sea on a quest akin to that of the Greek hero Odysseus, where he meets the sea god Mananon MacLear and encounters strange and wonderful lands. During his voyage, Bran commits over 50 quatrains of a poem on wooden rods using ohm. Using the ohm as we understand it today would require a huge amount of rods. So this seemingly simple statement could imply that the ohm might have been used in a more complex way if required, and a single character being employed to convey greater meaning than merely a single letter. Ohm is also used regularly in the Thon, with Cuchulain writing many messages to the advancing armies of Queen Maeve. So too do we see it being employed to relay secrets. Ogma, the creator of Ohm, used the script to tell Lu of his wife's infidelity. Similarly, Lovna informs Fionn Macul of his wife's disloyalty. Ohm seems to have been chiefly used for inscriptions of spells and for funerary rites. We read of heroes being laid to rest and their names being written in Ohm on rods of aspen and placed in their graves with them. Again, we have a glimpse of Ohm being used for more than just the letters that we understand make up the alphabet, and possibly with certain symbols being used in a funerary context conveying a different meaning. It could well be that Ohm had two applications the first being the face value of its letters that the educated in society would have understood, and the second, that the letters had additional meanings and symbolism that only the elite were privy to. Continental Celts had a particular penchant for sacred groves, and particularly oak groves. In Ireland, however, 
the distinct Gaelic culture seemed to favour individual trees and specifically the ash tree. Nowhere is this more evident than the tale of the guardians of the five provinces, which tells of how nature imparted the gift of wisdom to Ireland's early inhabitants as well as five sacred trees. One day, as the High King of Ireland held court at Tara, a great being was seen approaching from the west, from the other world. His name was Trifungid Triochre, which means of the three sprouts, for he held in his hand a branch which bore nuts, apples and acorns. Trifungid Triochre was described thus. As high as a wood was the top of his shoulders, the sky and the sun visible between his legs by reason of his size and comeliness, a shining crystal veil about him like unto raiment of precious linen, sandals upon his feet, and it is not known of what material they were, golden yellow hair upon him falling in curls to the level of his thighs. Christian scribes, upon committing mythology to paper, were compelled to belittle the ancient gods of Ireland as they believed in only the one true God. So the two of the Danon were turned into the she, the fairies, or wee folk, that inhabited the ring forts, the dunes, the raths, and the hawthorn trees. The fact that the scribes even recorded pagan stories demonstrates the complex nature of Christian integration into Irish society. The scribes themselves would have been Gale, and their language, history, and lore were who they were. As a result, Christianity developed very differently here as it did elsewhere. Here it had to be malleable and intertwine with rather than override the strongly rooted pre-Christian beliefs. So here we have Threefulnid Threeoker, a nature spirit, if not nature itself, described as a magnificent giant with dazzling aura and long golden hair. The giant conversed with the king and his assembly. He asked for their history, and they replied that they had no professional storytellers or chroniclers. The giant requested that seven of the wisest men from each quarter of Ireland, as well as seven from Tara, be gathered together. The men were duly assembled, and Threefulnid spent a long time teaching them about their history so that they may retell it to others. Then the giant called for Fintan, the white-haired ancient one, who had been gifted long life and had bore witness to all the invasions and peoples of Ireland. He gave Fintan the nuts, apples and acorns that adorned his branch and asked him to plant them in the four provinces of Ireland and one in the centre of the island. Fintan dutifully did as he was asked and travelled throughout Ireland to find the most sacred places to plant the seeds. At Bailoc Mugna, on the plain of Mag Alva, now known as Ballymoon in County Kildare, Fintan planted what became known as the O Mugna. There is uncertainty about what kind of tree this actually was. O is the Old Irish for the yew tree. However, legend claims that it was an oak, and owing to its association as the tree of knowledge, it could also have been a hazel. The confusion lies in the fact that this tree is the only one of the five that was able to produce nuts, fruits and acorns from its branches, the same as Threefilnid's branch. At Ardbrachon near Navan in County Meath, 
stood the Billa Thornton, a mighty ash tree. At Old Leyland in County Carlow, the Orus grew into a beautiful yew tree. At Farbel in County Westmeath, Crave Dahi also grew into another ash tree. At Ishnock in County Westmeath was to be found the last of the sacred trees. The Crave Ishnig was yet another ash tree. Ishnock is the very centre of Ireland and it is marked by an enormous 30-ton stone known as the Al Namuran, the Stone of Divisions, as it resides at the place where all the provinces meet. Under this stone, which was a gift from some long-forgotten glacier, is the final resting place of the goddess Eru, for whom Ireland is named. Eru was another of the Thuwa the Danann, and along with her sisters Banba and Fulla were the sovereignty goddesses of the land. Ancient Irish kingship was conditional on the land accepting a king. A bad harvest or natural disaster was an indication that the land was rejecting an unfit ruler. So when the sons of Meal, the first humans, arrived in Ireland, Eru, Banba and Fulla welcomed them and asked the land to be named after them. Although they were of the Thua themselves, they understood that their time had passed and they gave their approval to the age of men. These five sacred trees would have been major regional focal points for the populations. They were ancient living beings, whose roots buried themselves deep down into the realm of the Shi, and whose branches reached towards the heavens. They were seen as gateways to the other world, places to be respected, venerated and feared. As we heard earlier, the Irish for oak, Dera, has its roots in the Sanskrit Dor, which means door which uncoincidentally also provides the root element for druid, that class of society that could commune with the trees and the other world. As well as the five guardian trees, there were many other sacred trees around the country that provided the same anchor for the communities. Places to gather and address matters of importance to society. The long life of these sacred trees that span many generations of people added to their intrigue and cultivated their image as sources of wisdom and knowledge. They would have witnessed generations of kings being crowned under their branches. For this reason we are told that sacred trees sheltered thousands of men, symbolising the protection of kingship that extended to the people. A clan's tree represented continuity of tradition, which is the very reason that some of them were destroyed. We are told that the five guardian trees enjoyed a long life, but that they were all destroyed during the joint reigns of brothers Dyrmid and Flothmuk, who were members of the powerful southern Inail clan, Silna Aidsloin, who ruled from Tara. We are not told why the five guardian trees were cut down, but it could have been part of a recurring act by which kings cut down the sacred trees of their rivals. These terrible episodes occurred when over-kings felt the need to reassert their dominance over sub-kings. Equally, it was an act of an emerging king announcing his intent to claim overlordship of a region or indeed the entire island. We see a recorded example of this with a high king named Moylochlan MacDonnell who was concerned by the rapid rise of Brian Baru and his unification of Munster in the late 10th century. Brian began to make forays into Leinster, 
which was a direct affront to the apparent supremacy of the High Kingship. In response, Moylochlan marched his army into the heart of Brian's territory in County Clare and tore down the sacred tree of Magaither, where Brian, his father and his ancestors had been crowned. This vile act inflamed the Munstermen and they swept up into Midda, modern-day Westmeath, and exacted revenge by plundering Moylochlan's territory. Brian himself also employed this tactic, and after defeating the Norse Vikings of Dublin at the Battle of Glen Maumah in 999 AD, the Munster army marched on Dublin and extracted tribute from the defeated inhabitants. The annals tell us that there was a forest close to the city, called Kalia Thover, meaning Thor's wood. This was apparently a sacred grove where the Vikings would worship their god Thor. In a highly symbolic act to solidify his authority over Dublin and to vanquish pagan worship, Brian's army burned the wood to the ground. Perhaps because of their importance and the devastation that their loss meant to society, offspring of the tree were cultivated in secret locations. For we see that the Munstermen again had their sacred tree of Mag Aether in 1051. Unfortunately, we know of this as it is recorded in that year that Aeth O'Connor, King of Connacht, together with his army, pulled down the tree, and we hear of it no more. We see other examples, apart from Brian's treatment of Thor's wood, where insult is added to injury. In 1099, a northern Inail army under Donal O'Loughlin not only defeated the men of Ulster, but followed up by felling their sacred tree known as Crave Tolka. The Ulstermen saw their chance for revenge, and in 1111 hurried into Inail territory and cut down the Tullock Ock, the inauguration site of the Inail kings. Ignoring that they had been the ones to draw first blood, the Inail were outraged and tore into Ulster, pillaging and plundering the land and carrying off over 3,000 cows in compensation. There were many such sacred trees felled by the axes of enemies, such as the Ruad Bethok, the sacred birch of the Ufeikra Aidna kings of South Galway, who lost their most precious embodiment of community and power in 1129 AD. We have many references to this kind of symbolically charged and vindictive act. The process of marching an army into enemy territory to cut down a tree and risk attack or reprisal demonstrates how significant a clan's sacred tree was to them. Perhaps there was no greater slight and no greater humiliation than being unable to protect your society's tree, something that your ancestors had successfully done. What these examples show us is the reverence for individual trees continuing from our pagan past, through the arrival of Christianity and into the medieval period. Although the pagan elements would have been scrubbed away by the monks, the veneration of trees evolved into something new. They became symbols of the community that surrounded them. They anchored people to a place and connected them to the landscape. This is evident from sacred trees becoming the inauguration places of kings, as well as places of community to gather for events and celebrations.
The importance of trees to early Irish society was mirrored in Ireland's legal system, known as Breton Law. Breton Law is thought to be one of the oldest surviving legal systems in Europe. Although the manuscripts on which it was first written date to the 7th century AD, it was an oral legal system long before then. From examining certain legal words from Old Irish, Welsh and Old Breton, there is linguistic evidence that Breton law can be traced back to at least 1000 BC. So before the arrival of the Christian missionaries and their Latin letters to Ireland, the entire and complex native legal system was learned by heart and passed on from generation to generation of Bretons. The bulk of legal texts were penned in the 7th to 9th centuries, but thankfully later scribes copied the texts in the 14th to 16th centuries, so we have approximately 50 law texts surviving today, which cover a variety of topics and which give us an incredible insight into early Irish society, not least their view on trees. It must be noted that Breton law was only ever intended to be a guide on how the law should be implemented. That is, there were no dedicated courts, no prisons and no police to enforce it. A Breton was much like a judge or an arbitrator who would be invited to settle a dispute or disagreement and to deliver learned and impartial advice. They were highly regarded in society on account of their incredible intellectual acumen. Considering that they memorised every and all aspects of the legal system, it is astonishing but perhaps understandable that it took up to 20 years for a Brehan to complete his training. Once the Brehan delivered a judgement, he remained accountable, and if it proved to be a false judgement, the Brehan was liable for damages, as well as returning his fee, and not least his loss of reputation. The law tract which concerns us is called Bretha Covathiasa, which means Judgments of Neighbourhood, and dates to the 8th century. It lists the 28 primary trees and bushes and places them in their hierarchical structure, which was based on their economic worth and use. It deals with the various offences that a neighbour may commit against another neighbour's trees and the fines he must pay as a result. The severity of damages are distinguished into four categories. Cutting off a branch, cutting at the fork of the tree, cutting the tree down at the base, and finally completely uprooting the tree, known as extirpation. The law arranges the 28 trees into four classes, the most valuable being Arig Fedo, or the Lords of the Wood, or as they are less poetically known in modern academic circles, Class A. These would include the oak, hazel, holly, yew, ash, scots pine and the wild apple tree. If one were to damage any of these trees, the fine or dera was equivalent to two milch cows and a three-year-old heifer. The economy of early medieval Ireland was based on livestock. Even with the introduction of coins by the Norwegians and Danes in the Viking Age or during the Norman expansion, cattle remained the preferred form of currency right up until the 17th century. In addition to the initial fine, the culprit must pay the penalty for whatever category of damage his act falls into. If he were to cut a branch, he must give a yearling heifer, 
for fork cutting, a two-year-old heifer, and for base cutting, he must give another milch cow. The law does not state the fine for uprooting or extirpation, so we can only imagine that it was a severe penalty. Perhaps by having no precedent, it was leaving the potential penalty open to be devastating, depending on the individual and the situation. So what makes these seven trees the lords of the wood, and how did the humble apple tree make it into this category? The oak is unsurprising. The quality of its wood is unsurpassed amongst its peers. Early churches were constructed of wood, so it is natural that they would use only the best timber. There are many references to churches being called Deratyok or Oak House. Another legal text refers to the most sturdiest type of fencing being oak fencing, or Dara Imv. It must be noted that oak houses and fences would have been the reserve of only the very wealthy. The bark of the oak was used in the tanning of leather. The law states that if someone removes bark without permission in order to tan a pair of woman's sandals, he must pay a fine of a cowhide, which is no small amount. If the bark thief tans a pair of men's sandals, he must give over an ox hide. His punishment does not end there, however. Further, he must apply a mixture of clay, cow dung and milk to the wound of the tree and monitor the tree until it is deemed that new bark is growing. The oak's other great value is in the acorns that it produces. Acorns provide a rich diet for the purpose of fattening pigs, which were an important food source for our ancestors. Despite its relatively small size, hazel was invaluable to the early Irish. The nuts it produced were a welcome addition to their diet, especially during the winter months. For this reason, it is referred to as Briagufeda, the hospitler or food provider of the wood. Hazel rods were also an essential building component. Quick-growing, pliable and strong, the rods were used for constructing house walls, enclosures and fences. The holly tree proved very useful to our ancestors for the winter fodder it provided for livestock and the excellent use of its wood for chariot shafts and cooking spits. And the yew tree's importance was in the versatility of its wood in making household objects, and it was therefore known as the yew tree of artefacts. It is easy to see why these trees were important to early Irish society. They enabled them to build their houses, their fences which protected their livestock, allowed them to feed their livestock as well as themselves. The importance of the ash tree was due to its supplying the vital spear shaft that armed most early Irish warriors, as we previously seen. It was also known as the support of a king's thigh, which means that the chairs and thrones of kings were made out of ash. So too did it make yokes for oxen and oars for boats. The Scots pine inclusion in the Lords of the Wood was due to its resin. The resin was used to make pitch and was then employed in house construction and caulking boats. The straight nature of the pine trunk also made it ideal for use as a mast of a ship. The last of the lords is the wild apple tree. Its fruits would have been an important addition to the diet of our ancestors during the autumn and winter. So much so that a legal passage informs us 
that to destroy the apple tree of someone of high status would incur a penalty of 10 milch cows. An extraordinarily high penalty. We need not delve fully into the other three classes of trees, save for mentioning them. The Athic Fado, or commoners of the wood, included the likes of alder, willow, whitethorn, rowan and birch. Reasons for their inclusion are not always explained, but can be surmised from references to them in the texts, such as the use of alder in shield-making. Willow, although a light wood, was used for the building of impermanent houses which were common in Ireland. The penalty for damaging any tree in this class is one milch cow, in addition to a sheep for branch cutting, a yearling heifer for fork cutting, another milch cow for base cutting, and another two milch cows along with a three-year-old heifer for completely uprooting the tree. The third class was known as the fuller fado, or lower divisions of the wood, with the penalty for damaging any within the class as a yearling heifer. Here we find the blackthorn, elder and aspen to name a few. The last and least valuable class was known as losofado, or bushes of the wood, and with it a penalty of a single sheep for the initial damage and an additional yearling heifer for complete destruction of the plant. Bracken, firs, bramble and heather are some of the bushes associated with this class. These plants would have had a low economic value, but still enough to warrant some measure of protection. Bracken would have its uses for bedding, with firs and heather providing low-quality grazing for livestock and bramble for its fruits. All of the above Brehan law implies that by at least the 7th century AD, wood appears to be finite. It had to be managed, and the severity of the prescribed punishment demonstrates how serious society was about their precious resource from which they relied upon so heavily. We tend to have a romantic image of medieval Ireland as a heavily forested place, but this does not appear to be the case. In all probability, Ireland, by the 5th century, was an island of farmlands, interspersed by woodlands, which were largely privately owned, and we were told that these are usually surrounded by a ditch or a wall. There were, of course, large wooded areas, but the fact that they were named suggests that they were few in number. A 9th century account on the geographic features of Ireland lists the Tree Dithraveran, or the Three Wildernesses of Ireland. They were the Fidvor Hikulne, the Great Wooding Cooley in County Louth, the Fid Deshen Hitortri, the Wood of Deshu in Tortri, which is probably around Sleeve Gallion in County Tyrone, and the Fid Moitre Hikonachtov, the Wood of Moitre in Connacht. There are other references to great woods in the sources, but it is apparent that they were rare. It is worth mentioning that although many of the woods were privately owned, the law tracts list some rights of the communities within those woods. They were allowed to pick berries, collect enough firewood to cook a meal, and gather a small portion of hazelnuts, amongst other small liberties. The law tracks become very specific and make note of the different categories of wood, as well as the various wood-cutting implements that a farmer would be expected to own. One such being a tuig conad, or firewood axe, which was apparently so small that it could fit under your arm and was, on occasion, used for murder. 
One such instance occurred in 1243. The Annals of Connacht inform us that a man named Gilligan Einthar Umeadig invited Hugo de Lacey to inspect a moat at Duro in County Louth. As Hugo bent down to inspect the moat, Gilla took out the firewood axe that he had hidden under his armpit and dispatched the unsuspecting Norman. Such was the importance of wood to early Irish society that the axe was a prized possession. The penalty for destroying another man's axe was a two-year-old heifer. There were also laws intended for tree felling. The tree cutter was responsible for driving away livestock and ensuring that there were no sleeping, deaf or witless people nearby. If he did not, he was liable for fines and to pay the medical expenses of an injured party. Such were the details that the law tracks went into that they left little to chance. Although our landscape is now largely without trees, they very much remain with us in our place names. There are over 60,000 townlands in Ireland, and of that, over 13,000 are named after or have an association with trees. Here again, we see how trees helped people to anchor themselves to a place, to give them an identity. Fear not, we are not about to embark upon an exhaustive list of townland names, save for but a few to demonstrate the point, and also to show the persistent eloquence in Irish culture when it comes to the naming of places or things. The oak, Dar, provided over 1,500 townlands, as well as two counties with names. County Derry, or Dere, means an oak wood, and County Kildare, or Kildara, translates to Church of the Oak. Balasadare in Sligo, or Balia Osadara, is the town of the waterfall of the oak. Adair in Limerick, or Othdara, is ford of the oak. Derinane in County Kerry, or Dera Fionon, Oakwood of St. Fionon. Derinasira in County Leash, or Dera Nasora, Oakwood of the Craftsman. The yew is the next most common tree in Irish place names, and can be spotted in either of its forms. O, spelt E-O, and Ur, I-U father Or. County Mayo derives its name from the U. Muio, the plain of the U's. Drimo in County Leash, or Drim O, is the ridge of the U's. Agado in Killarney in Kerry, or Akado is field of the U's. Newry in County Down, or Antur, is simply the U. Terranur in County Dublin, Tyr on Ur, is territory of the U. Scots pine is a native tree to Ireland, or at least it was. It is thought to have died out 2,000 years ago, but was reintroduced in the 17th century. Interestingly, we find very few place names in Ireland that remember this native coniferous tree. Meenagus in County Donegal, or Mean on Gush, mountain pasture of the pine, and Loch Agus in Fermanagh, or Loch on Gush, lake of the pine. Medicine was hugely important in early Ireland and played a prominent role in mythology, with healers being held in very high regard. The most famous healer of the Thu of the Danann was a man named Dian Kecht, and he was known as the god of healing. 
The Breton Law tracks remember the great healer, and so can be found the judgments of Dean Kecht, which relate to the practice of medicine as well as the level of compensation due to an injured party, depending on the wound, circumstance and their social status. During the victorious battle for control of Ireland against the Fearboig, the king of the Thua de Danon, Noda, had his hand struck off, and due to this wound was forced to relinquish his throne. Dean Kecht employed all his healing abilities and spent many years forging a new hand of silver for Nuada. He merged sinew and bone to the silver hand until Nuada could again grip his sword. However, Dean Kecht's son, Miok, proved a more capable healer and grafted skin around the silver hand. The father became bitter and jealous of his son's superior skill and in a fit of rage, Dean Kecht slew Miok. However, Miach had one more gift to give, and upon his grave sprang all the healing herbs that would cure any ills. His sister, Armid, who was also a gifted healer, understood her brother's gift and arranged the herbs in order of their curative values upon her cloak. Dean Kecht was even more furious and envious of his son's superior skill, even in death. So he shook the cloak and scattered the herbs so that no one would ever know their secrets and he would again be the preeminent healer. Notwithstanding this spiteful act, some of the knowledge of medicine was carried on and we still have some of the old wisdom. However, it is not advised to try any of the following remedies unless, of course, you have consulted a naturopathic herbalist. The bark from the oak was and still is used for several remedies. Once the bark has been decocted, which is another way of saying to extract the essence from something by heating or boiling it, it can be gargled for sore throats, inflamed tonsils, to combat tooth decay, or simply as a mouthwash due to its antiseptic properties. It can also be used externally for minor burns and skin issues such as eczema and even as a snuff for nasal polyps. There are even recipes for a cream that can aid in the treatment of hemorrhoids, should one find oneself in such dire need. And returning to our lovely birch, the coloniser who made it possible for all others to follow. In a marvellous mirror image of how the birch balances the pH of the soil, when ingested as a tonic, it is superb for detoxification. The leaves can be gathered in bud or when fully open and used to make a tea or a tincture. A tincture, if your granny has not already told you, is usually an extract of plant or animal material that has been soaked or dissolved in alcohol. It can flush out acids from the body and reduce inflammation, as well as reduce cellulite and decrease fluid retention. It can also assist in the treatment of gout, rheumatism and arthritis. It is also a diuretic, so it can be used to treat urinary stones, as well as kidney and bladder problems. Like the oak, it can be used externally to treat skin conditions such as eczema. Even the sap of the tree can be used to make a cleansing wine. It is unsurprising that the hawthorn, which features so prominently in our myths and legends and has such a strong association with fairies, is another good medicine tree. The month of May brings forth their beautiful white blossoms, which are filled with antioxidants and flavonoids which are healthy plant chemicals found in most fruit and vegetables. Hawthorn can be taken as a tea or a tincture. It is known to be good for balancing blood pressure 
and improving the heartbeat, which can help peripheral circulation, including conditions such as Raynaud's. We know now that the bioflavonoids in the hawthorn relax and dilate the arteries and blood vessels, thereby relieving angina, which is a chest pain caused from a lack of oxygen-rich blood getting to the heart. These bioflavonoids, as well as the anthocyanins that are present, are antioxidants, which can help repair and prevent tissue damage. It is also meant to relieve anxiety. Doing so much for the heart, it should come as no surprise that hawthorn is traditionally thought to mend broken hearts. Similar to the birch, it was also used to treat kidney and bladder stones. The berries that the hawthorn produce also have a variety of uses. None, however, as flavourable as being tinctured in brandy, which would serve as a warming winter heart tonic. The medicines gifted by the elder tree and its flowers and berries are very special indeed. It is an excellent aid against respiratory issues, and it is beneficial for the immune system. As hay fever season appears, so too does the elder tree flower, which when taken in tincture or tea works very well at treating the condition, along with colds and flus, ear infections and sinusitis, as well as generally alleviating respiratory ailments. Elder flowers also have anti-inflammatory properties, which can relieve arthritis. The berries are packed with immune-boosting agents, so are excellent in warding off colds. They were traditionally used in foods, or made into a syrup, or indeed used to make a sort of wine. So... You have all thus far listened very politely, held your questions or criticisms, for which I am grateful, and hopefully even widened your eyes, raised your eyebrows, and nodded approvingly at some hitherto unknown fact that you've just learned about trees. But you may be wondering if it is all just ancient fairy tales, and if you are not spiritually inclined, is there any tangible truth to any of this? Well, there is. Kind of. We know a lot about trees and plants on a cellular level. We know that they take in carbon dioxide and release oxygen, the exact opposite of what we do, and we very much thank them for it, for without them there would be an uncomfortable lack of oxygen for us to breathe. But our gratitude for oxygen aside, why do we generally feel better when we are in a woodland space? Is it simply a change of scenery from the house and office, or is there a measurable substance to it? Can modern science help us to understand what our ancestors clearly did? Again, kind of. The last few years, more and more studies are being conducted about what exactly is happening in the woods, and how they are able to make us feel better. Like any good hypothesis, scientific or otherwise, there is research to back it up, research to criticise it, and research to go out of its way to state how utterly inconclusive it is. We are only scratching the surface, of course, but researchers are finding that woods are awash with beneficial bacteria, plant-derived essential oils, and negatively charged ions. The latter, if you've not come across them before, are atoms or molecules that have an electrical charge. There exist both positive and negative ions. Positive ions being more prevalent in an urban environment, and negative ions abounding to a greater extent in nature. That is undoubtedly an oversimplified summary of a complex relationship, but it is sufficient for our needs here.
These negatively charged ions are everywhere in nature. They are emitted from the growth of trees and plants. They are in the ultraviolet rays from the sun, and they surround water when it collides with itself, such as rivers, waterfalls, the crashing waves of a beach and after rain. The belief is that exposure to these negatively charged ions reduce symptoms of depression, increase cognitive performance, lower blood pressure, reduce serotonin to help with anxiety, as well as even helping children with ADHD versus an indoor activity. Knowing this, or at least beginning to know this, it is easy to see why our ancestors attached so much importance to trees and the woods they made up. They are alive. Trees are not simply a resource for human consumption. They are entities, beings that connect with us and allow us to connect with them. Regardless of how much you take to be true, there can be no doubt that something is at play in the woods. Something greater than ourselves is connecting with us at a cellular and even spiritual level. To approach such a topic as nature and the life within it, armed only with a scientific mind, you will only get so far. Nature does not have defined parameters that can be mapped and tested. It is the intricacy of life itself manifested with all its wonders and mysteries. In lieu of offering a detailed account of Irish forestry from the early medieval period to modern day, I will instead offer a whirlwind tour that touches on the more prominent events. Ultimately, by the turn of the 18th century, the vast majority of Irish woods had been felled. This was due to several factors, beginning with the exploitation of Irish woods under the Anglo-Normans and later English administrations, with Irish timber being exported to England as early as the 13th century, as is evident from the construction of a bell tower of Worcester Cathedral, which they noted was made with massive Irish timbers. This overuse of resources continued up until the mid-16th century, when Ireland witnessed tree felling on an industrial scale. There were several elements that saw Ireland's woods obliterated during a very short time. The production of iron and glass became industrialised with the invention of the blast furnace, which had an insatiable appetite for wood. Hundreds of iron and glass working centres were recorded around Ireland during this time. Cooperage, or barrel making, was a booming industry here, and countless great oaks were hewn down to make barrels for export to the continent, especially to France and Spain. English shipwrights took extensive advantage of Irish woodlands, especially after the 1543 Forest Act under Henry VIII, when Irish forests were specifically targeted after it was revealed that there was rampant corruption in the English forest administration and as a result, there was insufficient timber for her ever-expanding fleets. Throughout the latter half of the 16th century, Elizabeth I of England expressly ordered the destruction of Irish forests to deprive the Gaelic clans and their warriors of shelter and as places for ambush. For it was an English proverb of the day that the Irish will never be tamed while the leaves are on the trees. The felling of the woods also meant that England could continue its extensive shipbuilding programme, 
whilst also making vast sums of money from the export of Irish timber. This dual incentive ensured that Irish forests were levelled at an appalling rate. So much so that by the time English traveller and writer Fiennes Morrison visited Ireland at the end of Elizabeth's reign, he remarked, I confess myself to have been deceived in the common fame that all Ireland is woody, having found in my long journey from Armagh to Kinsale few or no woods by the way, excepting the great wood of Ophelia and some low, shrubby places which they call glens. The defeat of Hugh O'Neill and the subsequent flight of the earls in 1607 laid Ulster at the feet of the English administration, which they proceeded to extract every ounce of value out of. The successive waves of English and Scots settlers that were shipped in during the plantation of Ulster ensured that vast tracts of wood were cleared for the settlers. So desperate were the Crown to settle loyal subjects in hostile territory that they drastically lowered the price of land which enticed entrepreneuring Englishmen to buy huge areas of land and cut down and sell all the trees on it, thereby recuperating their initial cost. The 17th century saw several crown surveys completed, which identified the value of the remaining woods for use in shipbuilding. The Great Fire of London in 1666, which saw over 13,000 homes destroyed, was equally deadly for the remaining Irish forests. Westminster immediately passed a law that prohibited the building of houses in Dublin from wood. The small scattering of woods that then existed were harvested without mercy and shipped to London. The vigour with which the English Crown carried out their task of deforesting Ireland was so complete that by the end of the 18th century probably less than 1% of the island remained under tree cover. It had taken 200 years to clear Ireland of her ancient forests that had stood for 10,000 years. And with them we lost some of our natural treasures. The wolf, or Mactir, son of the land, and the wild boar, or Tork, both played significant roles in Irish myth. So too did we lose the native red squirrel, with the current species being reintroduced from Britain in the 19th century. There was a brief period of regeneration in the 18th century, when the landed gentry with their vast estates indulged in the latest European trend of forest management, and the establishment of wooded parks as opposed to the manicured gardens that previously existed. Not only was Ireland largely devoid of trees by this point, but unfortunately those that remained became tainted. There was a clear and lamentable disconnect with the native Irish and their once beloved trees. This is, however, understandable as people's relationship with the land changed dramatically. The population explosion of the 18th and 19th centuries increased the pressure on land availability and every inch was needed to grow food to feed themselves and veneration of ancient things does not fill one's belly. Thus arose an unfortunate association. Trees in the rented lands of native Irish were small, withered and resigned to the hedgerows, generally marginalised, much like the people that ignored them. The trees of the Anglo-Irish landed gentry were, on the contrary, majestic and larger than life. They occupied huge amounts of land that could have fed thousands of Irish. The trees, it could be argued, sadly mirrored the already bitter chasm between the native Irish and the landed gentry. This can be seen during the 1880s when Michael Davitt's Land League, 
that demanded fair rents, fixity of tenure and free sale, employed a multitude of tactics, including the mutilation of estate trees. The poverty-stricken Irish believed that the landlords valued their trees more than their tenants, and as a result they became common targets. The pressure from the Land League yielded some results, and although the passing of the Land Act of 1881 granted some concessions to tenants, it proved an ill act for Irish trees. The Land Act transferred enormous tracts of land from landlords to tenants, but before they lost sections of their estates, a nationwide fever swept landlords and they fell the trees on the land they were losing before selling it. The trees that escaped the initial purge were then put to the axe by the new Irish owners in order to recoup their initial cost in purchasing the land. So, by the 20th century and the formation of the state, Ireland was a barren landscape that had less than 2% tree cover, compared to a European average of 40%. Some modest reforestation programmes took place, but they were hampered by the economic woes of a new republic. However, by the 1980s, up to 300,000 hectares of forest had been planted, and today Ireland has 11% tree cover, albeit the majority of that being the divisive Sitka spruce plantations, which being non-native, do not provide wildlife habitat and negatively affect the pH balance of the soil. Nonetheless, and in an ironic twist, the once despised landed estates with their seemingly haughty trees that wanted for nothing and overlooked with disdain the Irish peasantry that surrounded them, now form the nuclei of our parks and recreational spaces. The old trees that managed to survive what could only be described as botanical genocide now represent what is simply wonderful about trees. Their stately bearing, the reach of their extraordinarily long branches, the enormous size of their trunk, which can take a seriously concerted effort on the part of a child to circumnavigate with a pair of wellies on. When one visits places where trees abound, it is clear to see that trees have regained an element of their symbolic role. The symbolism has of course changed, but they are still seen today as beings that represent the awesome power of nature. At present, there are numerous and commendable endeavours by organisations and indeed individuals to plant native broadleaf trees. This can range from picking up an acorn and sticking it back in the earth to a community-based effort to reforest Ireland, such as the charity and non-profit organisation called Trees on the Land. Established in 2013, Trees on the Land is a cross-border initiative covering the 32 counties. They work with farmers, smallholders, community groups, councils, schools, colleges and other landowners to coordinate hundreds of planting sites each year. Over the last seven years, they have helped different groups plant well over a million trees. People today, and in increasing numbers, have begun to develop connections with trees. Many believe that the stories and tales have more than a grain of truth. These living entities that have for millennia inspired awe and veneration are capable of emitting the means for connection, should one wish to tap into it. Meditation, which has become so commonplace, can be practised with the effects dramatically enhanced when conducted under the branches of a tree. So too with walking meditations. When one enters the wood and is guided on or off the path as they are led, not by the mind, but by something deeper. 
where they think only of the present and their surroundings, nothing of the past or future. And now, I believe, we have come to the end of this ramble through the woods. For a ramble is certainly what it was. It was not an exhaustive account of the history of trees. Merely, it was hoped that by touching on bits and pieces here and there, verbally wandering hither and thither, that it might spark some interest for you to go and further explore the history, mythology and folklore of our native trees. Trees that were once held in such high regard, but which were brought to the brink of extinction in this country. Thankfully, things are beginning to change. New awarenesses that were once old, and new thoughts and ideas that were once old, are budding again in people today. A gentle reawakening of the importance of our ancient wooded allies has taken root, and exciting times lay ahead as we re-establish and rekindle an ancient friendship with our beautiful native trees. Although it would be preferable to end on such an optimistic notion, the weight of reality demands that we part on more realistic and sombre terms. As despite genuine and commendable efforts, it must be borne in mind that well-established trees are still being felled with apparent little due consideration. As such... We shall part under the beautiful but poignant tree song, written and sung by Anna Tabush, who has very kindly allowed me to share it with you here. For two thousand years we've stood, fed the soil through our roots, fed the birds with our fruits. Now you chop us down, down, down. You chop us down We have made the air you breathe Shade and shelter with our leaves Cured ailments and disease Yet you chop us down, down, down You chop us down Watch the owls fly from the trees Watch the squirrel as she flees Will you hear their dying please When you chop us down, down, down You chop us down Will you know which tree you hack When you your deadly axe Will you look up all the facts Before you chop us down, down, down You chop us down When you've turned the trees to gold When you've lost the treasure you hold Will you mourn what you have sold When they chop us down, down, down They chop us down, down, down They chop us down, down, down
Ismisha Baramagown, August Gorav Milam Mohagwiv, Osoct Vet Lomenu, August Tosulagum, Gorvin Shivsult, Osan Vod Creola, Slongfoil. Mm-hmm. 